The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. As we continue to meditate at the beginning of this morning together, take a few moments to start over again. Perhaps take a few deep breaths. Letting go of whatever you're doing. And then to become aware of yourself in the most general way in the most general, open-minded way, how are you right now? How do you feel? If you have some concerns, what are they? Is there an attitude or a mood that you have if you kind of have a bird's eye view of yourself? And how are, how's your body? What does it feel like in your body right now? And are you comfortable? uncomfortable in your body. And then how are you aware right now? What would you say, how would you characterize 
how you're attentive, how your attention is, how easy it is to be attentive in the moment, what attitude is there in your attention. Can you notice something about the nature of how it is for you to be aware at this moment? And then see if you can bring a attitude of friendliness, kindness, compassion to being aware. So that the awareness itself is a friendly approach to meet whatever awareness meets. So that there's not a sense of conflict with whatever is. That awareness has no opposition or resistance. not forcing itself. And with whatever friendly awareness that you have, can you bring that to your body? As if you're a friend to your body. Maybe even as if your body is a friend to you in spite of any discomfort there might be. And letting your awareness roam around your, bo- roam around your body. Getting to know it, feeling, recognizing. In a friendly way. And if the idea works for you, see if there can be an intimacy with your body, intimacy with yourself as you're here and now in this body.
And then without directing your awareness, without working at it, notice, become aware of the body breathing. So the movements and activity of the body as you breathe come into your awareness. And rather than directing attention to the breathing, letting there be an intimacy with your breathing. No matter if it's comfortable or uncomfortable, letting there be a closeness. A willingness to be together. Feeling the rhythm of breathing in and breathing out. so much directing your attention to the breathing, but being open in your awareness to allow yourself, allow the body to be influenced, be affected by that simple rhythm. Almost as if you're getting a massage from the inside. Stay open to the possibility that it's beneficial to really receive that rhythm, breathing in, breathing out, expansion and contraction. Intimacy with breathing. So it's not so much that you are breathing, 
and not so much that you are directing attention, but the breathing is doing you. And the experience of breathing is allowed to come into awareness.
And then to end this sitting, take a moment to feel your whole body. Feel your body against the chair or the floor. Take uh, two or three comfortable, deeper breaths. And then when you feel ready, you can open your eyes. Welcome to our Dharma practice day. And is the volume loud enough for you? Okay. And um, these days uh, are a day to engage more deeply and and hopefully more personally in some of the Dharmic topics that are important for Buddhism. And this year we're exploring um, a set of teachings that in the ancient language is called anapanasati, which means uh, mindfulness of breathing in and out. And uh, down through the ages, mindfulness of breathing has been one of the core Buddhist meditation practices. And many people find it's useful to pay attention to breath outside of meditation as well. Um, It seems to have been the core practice that the Buddha himself practiced. And he uh, gave detailed instructions for practicing mindfulness of breathing. And uh, those instructions uh, take the form of uh, 16 steps or 16 stages or 16 aspects of mindfulness of breathing. And, uh, and so over this year, we're going over these 16 steps uh, bit by bit. And we're getting near the end And today we're going to uh, uh, do step 12, 13, 14, and 15. And we'll save the last one for another time. Maybe next time. I think we have two more uh, meetings like this. And uh, so some people have been coming to these since the beginning, I believe. And some of you might have come today for the first time. You're very welcome. If you're new here, you're very welcome. It's... Hopefully it works fine to be a drop-in for the day. But this also is a continuity, building on what we've done before. So um, if something doesn't quite make sense to you, because uh, maybe that's why, because you weren't here for the earlier part. But I suspect that um, the day will still be useful for you. And if you're new and you don't follow everything that's being done, um, and then you're probably in good company, because probably if you've been here a long time, you're also not going to get everything. So don't just, so it's all, you know, it's all good. The, um, and sometimes in these Dharma practice days, we have discussions. We have a lot of discussions, much more than a silent retreat day. 
Sometimes we break you into small groups or even pairs to have discussions about the topic. And we're doing much less of this, almost none of this, I think, in um, this series this year because of the nature. It's come of a meditation series. So we're doing more meditation. And then out of the, after meditation, we discuss what that was like a little bit as a group. And, but it, it could, at a moment's notice, I could decide that whatever we're discussing, it'd be good to kind of have small group discussions so everyone has a chance to speak. We'll see how it goes today. Um, and part of the reason, part of the motivation around these Dharma practice days is to really have a chance to practice in community. Uh, and so at lunchtime, there's, you know, and during breaks, there, sometimes during breaks, there's, uh, you can talk, and, and, um, and during lunch you can talk. And, and the idea is that a lot of the uh, support for practice and the understanding of uh, how practice works comes from being in community with other people, talking with other people, getting to know them, and interacting. So uh, this little bit these days, um, I hope to hopefully uh, providing some of that. So um, I want to do a little teaching right now, kind of as a way of setting the stage for these three stages that we're going to, three steps we're going to talk about today. So 13, 14, and 15 in this set, and and that's four, are um, uh, kind of a, a package to go together. And they uh, all, sup- all build on what happened before. And one of the important aspects of Buddhist practice is the idea that we're setting the conditions in place for the practice to unfold in certain ways. Uh, many people who come to practice will take um, uh, responsibility for doing the work of practice. It's a lot of work to practice, and I've got to really put my effort into it and really try hard and and, uh, you know, it's up to me to make everything happen and I better follow these steps like a dutiful worker working my way through. And, and um, some of that is accurate and there is what we have to contribute to the practice. But uh, um, at least half of the practice is that, we're, is that uh, we, we, our job is to put the conditions in place that allows something else to unfold. Uh, and without the conditions in place, it's difficult to allow things like concentration to uh, arise or strong mindfulness to arise or the, the sense of well-being that can come from the practice. It's hard for that to joy and happiness to arise without the proper conditions in place. So in Buddhism, some of the conditions, for example, more widely are things like leading an ethical life um, is very important. Um, and depending on the kind of life that we have and the kind of personalities we have, kind of figuring out what kind of lifestyle to live as well. Maybe have a lifestyle that's supportive um, of allowing some spiritual unfolding to happen. Um, that can't happen if you're... Um, maybe I shouldn't pick on this as an example. Maybe you'll forgive me. But uh, if you spend, you know, 12 hours a day, most days, frantically as a, uh, you know, as a s- s- stock trader on Wall Street, you know, yelling out your bids for different things and following the ups and downs of the stock market, it's n- probably not the best conditions to allow some deep settledness, a deep sense of well-being, joy, relaxation, inner concentration and settledness to kind of bubble up. <laughs> it's not the right conditions for that. But if you um, 
spend some for some people spending some time in nature, spending some time quietly by oneself, having tea, feeling kind of settled, having the affairs of your life kind of taken care of enough. So when you sit down to meditate, um, there's not a lot of preoccupation, concern. There's not a lot of leftover, unresolved things kind of churning away inside of you. And so then when you sit down uh, and kind of just relax, it allows something to bubble up and and fill you that is hard if you're standing there on the floor of, you know, you know, uh, the Wall Street or something, stock exchange. So it's putting in the, having the right conditions. And some people don't understand the importance of conditions and having the right conditions um, and think that they can just kind of like have it all, kind of full life, busy life, do all this stuff, stuff, and then just get, you know, the benefits of the practice uh, because they've put in their good work, their good time. So as we get into these last uh, stages of Anapanasati, uh, it's important to understand the value of conditions that set the stage for these to occur. So the three we're going to do today is uh, as we're breathing, because all this involves breathing, mindfulness of breathing, is um, having a deeper insight into impermanence, into how things change (coughs) over that's, no, that's uh, 13. 14 is um, to uh, keep breathing and in the experience of breathing to have the experience or to know that um, some of the attachments that you have begin to fade away. So knowing the fading away of clinging attachment that we have. And then, um, um, and then the, the 15th step is cessation, which is seeing that the things that we are preoccupied with, that we're caught in, that we're afraid of, that we're, you know, have ceased, have come to an end, have relaxed, you know, not there, at least temporarily. And these three steps go very very closely together. They support each other. So impermanence, fading away, and cessation. The word for fading away also has the meaning uh, both in, in, you know, in, in Pali, uh, in the original language, of meaning dispassion, becoming dispassionate. So it, um, I think the, most translators prefer fading away, but it has that connotation also. But in California, being dispassionate doesn't work so well because uh, there's a high priority value in California over the last 40 years, maybe, of having passion. And uh, passion can, you know, stated the right way, passion is a great thing. And I think the Buddha was a very passionate person. But um, he was not driven, and he was not caught in his passion or run by his passion, but he had tremendous enthusiasm, dedication, involvement. Um, he, uh, his, the word that sometimes is used for that is ardency. So maybe, not that, not, maybe that's not a popular word, word but uh, as passion is, but... But uh, passion also means things like lust. And so I think when, when they talk about dispassion in Buddhism, they're talking more about the fading away of lust, all the different kinds of ways that lust can work, our attachments. So for impermanence, fading away, and cessation, for them to occur, it's helpful to have in place certain conditions. And for impermanence, the condition that's really supportive of that is stability. 
And um, uh, recently I talked to someone who uh, was quite perturbed by the Buddhist teachings of impermanence because um, the person's background was extremely unstable. Um, starting when the, at the age of about, he had memories of about, you know, the first year or two of his life of um, being taken away from parents. And then the people that he knew, uh, oh, like yesterday, yesterday, I'll tell you a different story. Uh, yesterday I taught at the local jail a few blocks from here, county jail. And, um, as a, you know, I, I, I just went in and said, I'm here to answer your questions. And um, I'm a mindful teacher, I can ask you, I, I don't know who you are, and there are 50 men. It's like, you know, do you have any questions for me? And um, within a half an hour, some of them were crying. I was just answering their questions. <laughs> and um, so some of them, uh, but one of them, uh, had um, his big thing was his father died when he was nine and all the people that were important for him, his grandparents, all died in his, in his youth. And um, then, he, then, they, then they moved from where they lived to a new town and, and he had made a decision that he would never uh, open up to anyone or share himself to anyone. He wasn't trust, trust anyone. And, um, and somehow he gotten himself married in the last couple of years, even though he spent the last year in jail. And uh, wife came to see him, but um, but uh, had he ever told her what happened to his childhood? No, he wasn't going to share himself with anyone because it was too dangerous. His life was too unstable, uh, too much risk involved or losing people. So the idea of uh, you know for some people the idea of impermanence is just kind of a difficult, challenging concept because their life is so unstable. So part of the function of Buddhist practice is to create a, a very nice, deep sense of inner stability, some place of rest and connectedness here, uh, maybe a capacity of stillness, so something inside us and our hearts or minds can become still or stable, grounded, so that uh, there's a kind of inner strength that when we experience impermanence in our life, we're not so easily... Um, uh, overwhelmed by it or caught by it. And so part of the earlier uh, 12 stages of Anapanasati, part of their function is to help create that stability. And breath meditation in general is, a, uh, is often considered to be a stabilizing um, practice. Uh, in fact, some therapists, if someone's having a panic attack, will tell their clients, breathe deeply. You know, it helps or I had a friend who was a Zen student. Maybe I told you this already, but he was a long-time Zen student and he was living at uh, Green Gulch um, when he fell off the roof and broke his leg doing some kind of work. And so they, they called the paramedics and they came and he was in a lot of pain. And um, so I was with him and, and um, the paramedics said to him, breathe deeply. And he looked at me and rolled his eyes. <laughs> and um, anyway, breathing deeply, you know, breathing. So breathing is a, sometimes, sometimes, for most, for, you know, for a good majority of people, is a very stabilizing and helps to bring that calm and subtleness, and that's kind of the function of it. And so once that's there, then we can talk about impermanence. 
uh, fading away, letting go of attachments, um, you know, it's, attachments are often there for good reasons. Um, the gentleman in the prison yesterday, um, he had a lot of attachments, but he, uh, they protected, it was his way of being protected. And he probably, it really probably worked for part of his life to protect himself from the instability of his life, to not share himself, to be closed. And, but he was kind of miserable. And uh, I think he was just ready to, you know, you know this, his emotions were pretty close to the surface, though he had learned um, to keep them kind of, keep to himself. He told, I always stay by myself. And I stay in my head because I don't want to, sh- you know, I don't want to have to um, share myself with anyone. And uh, I was with the, the, the jail psychologist and, uh, and she said, oh, the, um, and she said, oh, he's been here for a while. And we've, tr- you know, done, offered him serv- psychological services and he always seemed like he was fine. <laughs> and now we know there's something different. You know, he was crying, you know. He was the biggest man in the, host- in the prison. Big, big guy. And he um, didn't want to share himself with anyone. And then um, we were talking with him a little bit and he'd, he'd been recently transferred from the Santa Clara jail to the, to the, local jail and it turned out that um, it's a big deal to transfer between counties so somehow he had to uh, applied for it and he had to pay for some of the services to make that happen because um, you can't just you know get uber and send them up (laughs) (laughs) so it it came out that um, apparently uh, that's what he said and the psychologist kind of concurred it's one of the options he came up from Santa Clara to San Mateo with 20 sheriff officers guarding him. And so she said to him, well, you know, 20, uh, that can only have happened if there was some, you were involved in some kind of violence in the jail at some point. And he said, oh no, (laughs) you know, nothing. Well, (laughs) there was that time when I was um, charged with attempted murder so, you know, that had receded from his mind. And um, so this ability to kind of stay with, you know, stay with himself. So to cultivate well-being, to have a sense of friendliness, have a sense of some, some, some modicum of happiness and well-being is also part of the function of Buddhist practice. And in fact, the earlier stages of Anapanasati, uh, three of those stages have to do directly with well-being there is um, the stage that has to do with um, um, joy, happiness, and gladness, delight. In addition to that, some of the earlier stages have to do with relaxing, letting go. And um, so then um, there is you know, impermanence, fading away, And then the last one today will be cessation, which is really letting go fully or or watching things let go or have the trust and the openness that allows some of the things we've been holding so long to release themselves. And there's a number of things that hopefully need to be in place for that to happen well. One of them is confidence, some inner sense of confidence and stability and confidence. And also some familiarity with a value of letting go, of relaxing. And in fact, so some of the earlier stages um, talk about uh, 
relaxing, tranquilizing, letting go to some degree. And so as we learn to relax and uh, tranquilize and soften the body and the mind, then I think it becomes more um, understandable. It's more like you can almost intuit or feel, or your mind can kind of feel, can, can almost kind of get see just the other side of clinging to where it's possible to let go fully, to fully let go, to have these things cease. But to not really understand the value of that, to not have any experience of small steps in that direction, it can be too big of a step for the, our minds, our hearts, to be willing to take that deep relaxation, just really let go. And so these earlier stages kind of set the stage so that uh, the deeper letting go cessation can happen. And all this is very important to, to understand because if you, hear, uh, if you hear some of the more deeper teachings of Buddhism, uh, without the, the prerequisites for it or the foundations for it, it can be too, seem like too high a bar. It's just like too big, it's too, and people get idealistic and people have too high expectations of themselves and they measure themselves against it. I'm not living up to this, what, you know, what's possible. And, um, and, uh, but uh, over and over again, the Buddha talked about this is a gradual path. It's not the sudden school. It's the, the gradual school. And what we're gradually putting in place are the conditions that support this deeper work later on. And so this is kind of what we've been doing over this time. So what I'd like to do today is to at least do three uh, meditations, um, one on impermanence, one on fading away, and one on cessation. Uh, but in doing them, to first set the stage for them. And so to work, to kind of begin the meditation with stability, well-being, and then uh, the supports for letting go, confidence and and relaxation. So that's the plan for today. And um, any questions about that before we take a break? Yes. Viraga, viraga. Yeah. So they asked about the, the Pali word for fading away. It's viraga, and uh, raga means um, has two meanings. It means um, both passion and, and all the connotations of the English word passion but it also has the meaning of a dye that you uh, color cloth with. And V kind of means kind of like out or away or to fade. So it's the fading of the dye, so fading away, or it's the fading or the ending of passion. Make sense? Whichever you prefer. Anything else? Yes. Is there a mic up nearby? Coming. Um, so, what's the re- is there a relationship between viraga and virya in the V part of it? Are they different roots? I think it's. I think that the V is a common prefix uh, in Pali. Uh, it means it has a variety of different meanings. It's like vipassana. The prefix is, is a V, but there it's a, 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 precept, a, precept, a prefix of emphasis. Um, but uh, uh, virya is uh, comes from uh, vira. So it's own word. It's not a prefix there. 
and uh, vira means a hero. So it's, you know, it's not just effort, it's kind of heroic effort. Okay, so uh, maybe um, we'll come back in maybe quarter to uh, 11 to do our, we have a little more than 15 minutes for a break or walking meditation as you wish. And I propose that we keep this break in silence just so that we some of the subtleness of the morning can continue as we come back for our next meditation. <laughs> 